Hey there, welcome to XR Industry Leaders with ArborXR. My name is Brad Scoggin, and I am the CEO and one of three co-founders of ArborXR. We've had the opportunity of working with thousands of companies since 2016. And we've learned a ton about what it takes for XR to be successful in your organization. And I'm Will Stackable, co-founder and CMO. This podcast is all about interviewing the leaders who are on the ground making XR happen today. True pioneers in the space, from Amazon, Walmart, and UPS, to Coke, Pfizer, and beyond to uncover the pitfalls, lessons learned, and secrets that you can use to help grow XR in your organization. Well, today we are gonna have a fun episode. We get to sit down with an old friend, uh, Matt Cook. Matt Cook uh, works with Harvard University Libraries as the in-house or as an in-house XR consultant. Uh, Matt, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks guys, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well. I do want to hear about your, tra- we met you when you were at the University of Oklahoma, and I want to hear about your kind of transition from, from there to Harvard, but maybe just a quick step back, you know, how did you get interested in XR to begin with? Yeah, great question. So my training, uh, you know, academic background is actually philosophy, philosophy of mind particularly. So what I studied in grad school is the way that tools can shape our thinking and the way that we can extend our thinking with the tools around us. You know, the, the obvious like example is like a calculator, like you can't do hard math in your head generally, so you use a calculator, but it still counts as like part of your cognitive process. That's the way that philosophers break it down. Now imagine that times a million and you have, you have VR, you have a complete <laughs> virtual environment, everything is under your control. You can put the things in that are relevant, you can take the things out that are distractions. So that's sort of, the, the theoretical background. And then at the same time, you have academic libraries, which are moving away from pure book collections. Like that's not fun for undergrads, right, anymore. So the idea here is now, uh, and I've heard it described this way, knowledge in all forms. So it's not just books and, you know, totally unapproachable collections. You actually have technology, you have tech loans, you have enhanced classrooms, you have all the things that you see in like a modern university. So it's like kind of a cool opportunity to apply that mindset, which is the environment is a tool. And now we have this environment, an academic library, which is evolving. We can make it into a giant tool to support the thinking of undergrads and and professors and scholars. So that's sort of where it all came together, I would say mid 2010s, 2015, 2016. I love that. Yeah. And we met when you were at University of Oklahoma and we did a few projects together. We were kind of together trying to push. It was early days. Right. And it was uh-huh. all stand. I mean, all tethered headsets for the most part at that point, which I think at the time was just a massive barrier uh, for VR and education. It was really dependent on labs and things. And um, but yeah, tell us, I mean, so you, you're at Harvard now. I mean, talk, how is that? How's that been? What was that decision like, you know, making the jump from from Oklahoma to Harvard? Yeah, sure. Uh, believe it or not, I didn't expect to be doing VR when I got to Harvard. I, I applied really? to a job that, you know, as someone that knew a lot about it, of course, I talked about it during the interview process. Like that was my niche at OU, 3D and VR. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't see a whole lot of it happening here. Then immediately when I got here, I started getting uh, requests to help out with, with VR implementation. So it's like I couldn't avoid it even if I wanted to. This is a super popular growth area across the world, you know, across universities. So I've been doing it a lot and Harvard is doing it a lot. COVID sort of slowed things down a little bit. Um, But the thing about the Harvard versus the Oklahoma VR scene is we have uh, just amazing sort of 
collections material. So you think, can think about rare objects that the Harvard oh, yeah. professors have spent hundreds of years going out and collecting. So everything from rare books to like scientific instruments. We have 3D scans of um, birds in our natural history museum that we can put into virtual reality. That's so cool. these are like kind of unique Harvard objects that we have access to that kind of gives us the content that I didn't have, you know, I didn't have it at OU. So that was a lot more geared towards like out of the box software uh, and implementations. Yeah, I remember one of the, I think, I mean, you know, gosh, early again, VR in education. I think one of the examples that I used for a long time that I heard from you when you were at the University of Oklahoma was, I think, I'm, I'm, I've always credited this to you, just the ability, you know, for like an anthropology class, typically they get access to a skull or something maybe once a year. In VR, you get in there and you can, you know, spin it around for for hours if you want to, which is which is really cool. And um, so, but tell us, you've been at Harvard since 2019, right before COVID. You know, I know thing COVID has slowed things down, um, but over the last four years, also there's been obviously a lot of uh, new headsets at the market, a lot more content out there. I mean, what how how have things kind of evolved uh, since you've been there with with integrating VR into education? Yeah, totally. Um, whereas the tethered headset era in Oklahoma was all about like solving hardware problems. I think now it's a content bottleneck that we're facing. So the yeah. pain point is no longer the hardware, which is great. That's like a problem that you can kind of force your way past with enough staff. There's still issues, right? We, we all know just logging into a headset is not straightforward depending on your vendor, but uh, you can have people to help with that and you can kind of get, get past it. So, and the ergonomics of a tetherless headset are a little bit easier on the student as well, transport, right? Power, graphics, all that is like portable now. So we're not worried about that. Now we're worried about, okay, there's too much interest. There's too much demand. How do we build a custom application for everyone that walks in the door that wants to do VR? Because we're hearing it in, in the news, right? Like metaverse is in the news for better or worse. AR, VR is in the news for better or worse. Like people walk in, they wanna do something with this technology. Maybe they have no idea what, uh, and you know, building software is, is a big deal. It, it takes a lot of time and effort and money. So we kind of have to like pick and choose both who we work with and what we recommend to them. Uh, and I think that's what's changed. That's not a problem, that's that's an opportunity, mm -hmm. right? But you just have to be familiar with like the environment, with the landscape of, of available tools and software. So I'm excited, I'm, I love the demand problem. Um, and I like that we're not fighting with software, but the, the new sort of challenge is, is content. I want to dig into that a little bit more. Um, you know, you have students coming from all different walks of life and, and going into all different types of fields. There really is no one size fits all solution. Uh, and I would say that's true, not just in education, but also in industry. We talk to companies that are using it for five or six different types of applications. So for you in your context, how, how do you create an XR program that scales and uses these new technologies effectively with such a range of disciplines and backgrounds? Yeah, great question. So I've basically doubled down on a small number of, of tools, productivity tools essentially, uh, that exist in, in, in XR, but also have desktop clients. So this makes it a lot easier to prep content, uh, to provide an accessibility option for those that are not comfortable in headsets, uh, and also to do cross-platform like multiplayer uh, and, and engagement. So I'm thinking specifically of tools like Gravity Sketch for rapid prototyping and design. I'm thinking of Spatial.io or Hubs or Verbella or Engage for like online classrooms where there's a social component 
uh, or in the case of data visualization, there's Virtualytics. They're out of Pasadena. That's sort of an interesting uh, like big data analysis platform that you can use, drag and drop your spreadsheet into VR. Super powerful stuff. And if you, if you have those three in mind, you can kind of help anyone because you can put a 3D model into hubs or you can put a big data set into Virtualytics or you can create a new product in Gravity Sketch. So it's like, okay, we have something you can do to at least try XR in your classroom or with your research. And then if you have the interest and you want to raise some money, maybe then we can build something something custom, right? Yeah, that makes sense. So there's that broad spectrum of all different types of tools. And I almost want to link all those in the show notes so people can do some, some Googling, some searching. Uh, can you zoom us into a single use case at Harvard? Um, maybe whether that's something out of the ordinary, like your ancient literature courses, or, uh, or even you could also talk about, you mentioned some of the chemistry lab uh, use cases that you guys are experimenting with. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, coming from the humanities, like philosophy background, I kind of have a foot in that world and can speak that language. So a lot of what I do professionally is sort of translating the benefits of technology to a non-technical audience, specifically like a faculty member. So those are the most interesting use cases currently. I'll just give you a few examples here. So early on pre-COVID, we uh, did a classroom curricular integration um, called Staging Shakespeare. We have a scale replica of the Globe Theater in Harvard Library Collections. It's under lock and key. It's in the basement uh, of our special collections. Uh, we were able to 3D scan and place that object at human scale in virtual reality for these undergraduate students to feel what it's like to perform on the stage, uh, well, Shakespeare cool. stage. Well, so right now we have over a th access to over a thousand 3D scans of ancient Egypt and the Near East through the Harvard Museum of the Ancient Near East, and that's another faculty partner where we'll be building sort of virtual worlds using these objects to populate scenes. So you can do research on like. Um, uh, sarcophagi or Giza pyramid artifacts or different ancient Egyptian like tombs that were unearthed uh, early on when people were doing research on behalf of Harvard. Uh, a couple other examples, we did a Dante visualization. So you've heard of the Divine Comedy. It's like heaven, hell, purgatory. We did a like essentially a reproduction of the engravings, the art, the original art that accompanied that work, uh, you know, way back in the day. This was a very like artistic stylized walkthrough for students to see sort of what the text was trying to communicate. So an atmospheric walkthrough of this Dante novel I guess you would call it from back in the day. And then just today I was on a call with a faculty member. Uh, the cathedral at Cluny or the monastery at Cluny, this is in France, was destroyed or fell to ruin uh, more than 100 years ago. Wow. Um, and it was unearthed and recovered by another uh, Harvard faculty member again back in the day. And he was able to make casts of these like ornate architectural components of the of the monastery. So we're able to take those casts and create a scene uh, for architects and students to study what it was like in medieval France in these like in these monasteries. So these are sort of rare objects that are spread around the university that we're using to build scenes or concepts that faculty are teaching that are difficult to communicate otherwise. We don't have to travel anywhere. We don't have to sort of create anything custom in these cases, but we're able to really quickly uh, and easily help help them. 
Wow. So multiple, yeah. So I want to dig in on all of those, but I guess mm. I have a more, a broader question, which is we often talk, we oftentimes talk about how VR is great for anything that's difficult, dangerous, or expensive to simulate in real life. Where are you seeing, where's the advantage to using VR or AR in an educational setting and, and what makes it better than traditional learning? Can you think, what, yeah, what, totally what comes to mind? Absolutely. Um, I get really deep into the literature where it's like uh, human computer interaction. So like for me, the lowest common denominator is like um, when the scene becomes either too complex to view on a normal screen or on a textbook page. So there's like too much detail or you need to see something from multiple angles or perspectives. So mm -hmm. if you have something like an architectural motif, so it's like a column top, they call it a capital, right? So it's like all engraved from multiple angles. This is not a thing that you can see on a flat surface. You need to be able to navigate around it to view it from multiple perspectives to understand what the people at the time were doing and what the culture was like, etc. Right? These are perfect candidates for 3D scanning and visualization in virtual reality. Now, that doesn't speak to a whole range of like sociological and cultural simulations like you discussed with previous guests. So my focus has always been sort of STEM and objects of study that are that have some place in the world that you're sort of reproducing rather than like narrative content or simulation or training scenario. So there's there's all these different approaches, right? To XR. If you're studying some object and it's you're looking at it in a textbook, then the chances are you could be doing it better in XR. And that's sort of been my approach. I was going to ask this later, but I feel like I have to ask now. As you're talking about 3D objects and being able to really use them in a practical way in a, in a virtual environment, I keep thinking about just image quality and being able to actually have you know a headset that matches the quality of the scan. What what are your thoughts on the new Apple headset? And I know it's it's really expensive, but I'm just thinking even with a Quest 2, it's great, but are you really able to get the fidelity you need to be able to observe and zoom in closely and look at the textures and everything else? Or what's kind of been the sweet spot for you in terms of uh, quality versus price, if that makes sense? Yeah, great question. Um, it looks, from, from all looks, you know, all the media, it seems like we're getting pretty close to like human eye resolution with these headsets. Now, it's crazy. that's never been the deal breaker for me. It, a lot of this is like practicality, price being a big one. Um, that being said, I think we will get to the point relatively soon where we will, we will reach the scanning level of resolution, which right now is higher, like you say, than than this, the uh, uh, headset visualization. Um, but we don't even need that much scanning to see patterns and relationships and or that much detail to see patterns and relationships necessarily. So uh, I've not encountered many scenarios where a person that didn't see the level of detail that they wanted couldn't move closer in a virtual scene or zoom mm. in to achieve that level of detail, even if the headset resolution was, was too low. So that hasn't been the deal breaker, I think, cost versus resolution is probably going to be a deal breaker. What I've been hearing is, and then interfacing. So what I've been hearing a lot is like the, the eye tracking is the big, is the big deal with the Apple glasses. So like you don't need a controller. Like when I work with a faculty member, I mentioned my goal is to translate the benefits to someone that may or may not understand the technology. So you put a game controller in a faculty member's hand, it's not good. It doesn't usually end well, right? They, 
these are not everyone is a video game person. Not everyone understands why you might need a controller or how to use it without training. If you can just look at a, a menu item, eyeball it, right, and do a hand gesture and in, interact with the scene, that is a huge deal, perhaps even more important than than scene resolution. Very interesting. Um, <clears throat> so you've been you've been in uh, education, doing VR and education for a long time. Uh, and we always ask this for our enterprise uh, interviews, but seeing VR evolve, you know, I know we talked about hardware and now content. I mean, what are some of the other barriers or, or, or maybe the biggest barriers you've seen of trying to bring VR into education at the university level? Um, just moving, like practically speaking, moving headsets around between classrooms, keeping them charged, right? All the stuff that Arbor, I think, helps with and that, that I've noticed they're their kind of built-in functionality for some of these current headset management tools. So that's one aspect of it. Uh, the other thing is sort of, we can go down the content road again, but just sort of communicating the benefits in a way that yeah. someone can understand that without, I tend to go a little bit into the weeds with, with some of the jargon. So that's that can be problematic. Um, yeah, so in addition to just finding good content that for someone that might be interested, not scaring them off with all the all the jargon and getting the headset to their class on time and making sure all the headsets are charged and logged in and they have Wi-Fi and the content is correctly preloaded and someone is not going to like, you know, get motion sick in the first 5 minutes and not have a backup plan. So these are all just like little things that kind of, you know, you notice over the years. What, what about like the, the people side? You said when you went to Harvard, you weren't planning to do VR. I mean, has that, what's it like selling it internally or is there a lot of selling it, selling leadership? I mean, what's that process been like? I would say this, yeah, leadership, I would say is less familiar with the technology. Um, colleagues, like peers, they get it. And now yeah. those are the sort of people that brought me in. I'm, I'm so grateful to have that them show an interest in the thing that I'm very passionate about mm -hmm. and coming here and seeing that they, that people are interested and we're struggling with the same issues so we can all sort of struggle together, right? So I do think there's like a cohort of people that are, are doing it, doing it well, ready to go and ready to share and talk, talk about it. And that's growing. Uh, it's particularly growing among like grad students. So you'll have like um, an instructor, a grad student assistant that is like teaching a class and they're like, talking to their lead professor, oh, we should bring in this new technology from the library and we're gonna build a virtual exhibit for art history class in a, in, a, in a gallery, in a virtual online gallery space. And the students can place their own art and walk through as a group and discuss that art in real time. So that's like coming from the grad student, not from the professor, because yeah. they're not gonna go out of their way necessarily to do something new if they've been teaching the same class the same way for years, right? Yeah, yeah. I think one thing we saw well, yeah. One thing we saw back, even when we worked together previously, Matt was, and we still hear, we still hear this from those implementing VR in education. Just the challenge of integrating it within curriculum, right? And like you know, it's 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 augmenting. Well, how do you fit it in, and how does it? And I think you talked about uh, earlier, or we were going to talk about the the organic chemistry example, and I think that's a really really good example. I'd love to hear maybe share a little bit about that process for you guys, and because I got to think something like that too for the faculty to see, wow, for the faculty yeah. to see, wow, th like, there's a real impact here. Totally, you're right. You start, in that case, we start with the syllabus, right? We work yeah. backwards from the <laughs> syllabus and start yeah. trying to force a, a square peg in a round hole. So you see there's like a week during the semester, hey, wait a second, the students need to have a spatial comprehension 
of some molecule or set of molecules. Yep. And we know from from you know research that this is a hard thing for people to visualize like mentally. They, like people really struggle to visualize the layout of, of atoms in space. They're, you know, it's like a complex object. So <laughs> we're gonna fit in here and we're gonna just really narrowly intervene uh, over the course of a week. We're not gonna try to rewrite the entire syllabus and we're gonna throw at it every trick in the book. So we're gonna make sure that we, the faculty members should not have to think about anything related to, to headset hardware or content preloading or any sort of delay, right? We wanna just make it totally seamless, uh, out of the box. They shouldn't see all the problems that we see and deal with. And it works, and we documented that it works by giving students um, surveys before and after class and asking them how they felt about their knowledge of what was being taught. Uh, and it was, it's, it's documented. You can, you can read it yourself. The feedback was fantastic. The numbers are there. Students are better off when they're able to, to look at data in a way that you know, makes sense. It's natural. It looks like the thing in the world blown up a million times and placed right in front of you. And you, your team used Nanom, right? That was the... Totally. Nanom is cutting edge stuff and it's used in industry and it is being used widely. I'm really interested and excited to see what those guys are doing. Yeah, they're a fantastic team. And whether you're, you know, K through 12 university or even it's being used for pharmaceutical drug discovery, mm-hmm. definitely worth checking out them. We'll, we'll link them in the show notes. Uh, I kind of want to, get as we move to wrap here, um, I have a few things in mind, a few areas we could go, but one of the I want you to you use the term digital superpowers before, and I know you went into this a little bit, but I want to give you an opportunity. What does that mean when you throw out that XR, it gives you a digital superpower? Um, what does that mean to you personally? And then what does that mean for education more broadly? Yeah, that's I'm super excited about that concept because historically people have thought that the best possible XR experience is one that recreated some physical experience perfectly. But when you start looking at like the sorts of objects that we're talking about, you're not allowed to do some things with them physically. You're not allowed to stick your head inside a car engine, right? You're not allowed to reach into a human body and see the way that blood vessels are are distributed. You know, these are you're not allowed to go inside the Great Pyramids at, at Giza. Even if you traveled there, you wouldn't be able to go inside. So, why not give people powers that are not physically possible and not let them fly when I give them extra vision 360 vision the ability to sense density with like some sort of haptic feedback these are all like things that are happening in labs like university labs and being studied that are that are coming down the pipe that I'm very interested in and it might be a good a good segue to just jump straight into the other sort of elephant in the room technology which is AI I mean this is linked intimately uh, to VR and XR so There are undergraduate teams right now at Harvard, very interesting work, uh, voice to unity. You can speak new games into existence uh, on the HoloLens. So that's just what the undergrads are hacking together right now um, in one of our labs. But the way it's been described is as, quote, post-symbolic communication. So text to 3D is a thing you you can do now. You can write a line of text that describes an object. I want to see a pink elephant in a you know a purple room playing pool. You can create a 3D scene with words. Now imagine if in the future you're walking through millions of books in our collection, just walking down the, the row of you know 
stacks, they call them, uh, and you have an Apple Glasses on or something like an Apple Glasses 4.0, you look at a binding on the shelf and then AI takes the content of that book and creates a virtual world on the fly for you as a student to walk through what the author was talking about in that book. Now we have 20 million books at Harvard Library. If you had AI plugs into the catalog in that way, you would have 20 million virtual reality applications. That's, that's the future of this technology in an academic library. Man, there's a whole world there we could go into. We should do a whole other episode just on that. It reminds me of, there's a great book by Neil Stevenson, uh, Diamond Age. It really just talks about the potential future of education when you have uh, you know, advanced AI that you can have a conversation with that also understands and has context for the real world and how how you could have the best teacher in the world. You could have Socrates, you know, essentially. Um, and you could make sense of this incredible amount of data that's, you know, being generated past and present. Um, does that does that get you excited? I mean, this is a whole nother combo, but when you think about that intersection of AI and XR, and I mean, some people call that the singularity or whatever. Um, yeah. Does that get you excited or does that terrify you? <laughs> it's a little bit of both. Honestly, both. I think they're, they're more closely related than people realize. Some people feel super, th people in XR, I have noticed, can feel threatened by AI, but I think it's the wrong way to look at it. AI is really, really great at automation. AI is the pinnacle of human automation and XR is the pinnacle of human interfacing. So you can get data to a certain point. Like you can get a big data set to a certain point, then you need human eyes on to sort of comprehend, to interpret, to understand. So I love AI for the fact that you can narrow down a data set or sort of organize it perhaps, but I don't think it's gonna replace the experience of you know, engaging with that data as a human being, as a, a student or a researcher or a faculty member. So you need both, like they may converge, like you say, at some point when the AI is in, in the visual cortex, let's say. Thank goodness we're a little ways away from that, I hope. Uh, but right now, like you still need to interface as a human being. And the best interface is one that is XR related. And you know, if, if there's data on screen, it's not good enough. If the data is refined by AI, it's not good enough. You need some interface mechanism and that's gonna be the, the highest bandwidth one. Yeah. I like what you said a few minutes ago about the, the digital superpowers. And I think that's important. And I think that's, that's important for people who are deploying VR and XR to be thinking about, because it is so easy to kind of slip into, let's just recreate what we have now, right? And I think you go back to when digital education kind of first became a thing back whenever, you know, it's like, well, let's make a PDF out of a textbook. Like that, that's yeah, not exactly. helpful, right? right? Like, I mean, it is helpful, but it's, there's so much more potential if you can start to think about what's possible. So I love that. Uh, I think it's important that people think that way. Um, maybe as we do wrap here, you've been doing this for what, seven, eight years. I mean, just some advice for someone first time bringing VR into their educational institution. Um, what, what would you say? Yeah. So, um, focus on like we discussed the syllabus and the object of study. So the object of study is like the thing that the students are learning about and then work backwards from that. And depending on what type of object of study it is, like if it's a thing in the world, you're in luck, you can either scan it or model it mm -hmm. and put it in XR pretty easily. If it's a narrative or like a training scenario, you gotta think about production value and that could mean fundraising. And then the sort of next generation that I'm interested in, I alluded to this before the call, 
uh, and it's, it's AI related is generative XR, right? So this is where the humanists are benefited. There's not a great way to get an English class. You know, we read, you read books in English class, let's say, let's just generalize or history class. You're studying history. It's like, all right, how do you go from a, just a body of text to, to a visualization that's relevant? Well, maybe you could do it automatically if you have generative AI to 3D technology and then all this huge number of academic departments that were not served by XR previously are now, they're open to it. So it does, it can work for the humanities for this tech-centric disciplines. Yeah. STEM is easy. I don't want to say easy, but it, you know, it's easy conceptually. You still have to do it. And then you have these like middle, middle of the tier, like productions, right? Where you got to be a little bit careful. So that's, that's how I would think about it. Break it down into the object type. Think about what your production, you know, costs might be, uh, and then work, work closely with the faculty member. Yeah. Fitting it into their, their existing plan. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's kind of, you know, the people component of XR adoption, is so big. And I think, I mean, the advice you just gave is very specific to education, but we've heard similar advice for a pilot and enterprise. You know, it's, it's a similar type of thing, right? Like you've got, you need an aha moment from someone in leadership. And the way you get that is you, you serve their direct goals in a way that doesn't distract from what they're trying, you know, trying to accomplish. Totally. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's, uh, well, this has been great, Matt. I really appreciate you taking the time. Like I said, it's good to see you again. Where can people find you? LinkedIn, Twitter, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I also have a program site, like a Harvard site for what I do and, and what we're working on here. Uh, I'll, I'll send you guys both of those. Okay, cool. And we can, we'll link them. Um, so yeah, appreciate it, Matt. Good chat. With Excellent. You. Yeah, thanks. Well, that was a lot of fun connecting with Matt. Uh, I love his approach and we've seen it again and again. The, the, there's no one size that fits all and you've really got to uh, look at whether it's the class or it's the department within your company and determine where are we going to get the quickest um, results and just the people component. You got, you got to sell leadership. You got to get buy-in from the students or, or, uh, or the team. Uh, I think that's really good advice. I also thought his point that sometimes people in the XR industry feel a little bit nervous or maybe they feel like AI is a threat. And I think he's right that they're, they're, they're related, but they're very different that I think he made the point to paraphrase that, AI is great for organizing and kind of making sense of a huge amount of data and obviously automation. Um, and then VR is great for visualizing that data. It's a, it's more of a spatial computing aspect. And I think that's something even listening to, um, I call him Tim Apple, Tim Cook uh, up on stage, you know, him talking about how we go, we went from the personal computing era to the mobile computing era. Now we're in the spatial computing era. And I, I think that's maybe the term virtual reality or augmented reality actually isn't that helpful when really what we're just talking about is a better way of interfacing with the digital. Um, so I thought that was a great point he made, and I'm probably going to repeat it now, and I'll try to remember to give him credit. Uh, it, it was a great point. And when he said it, I actually, um, I did feel the, the, you know, intimidation from AI a little bit. And so it was kind of nice to hear him, hear him process it in that way. We're all afraid uh, well, of the robots. It's because we yeah. all grew up on the Matrix. I mean, how can we not be right. afraid of? Uh, well, thank you for joining us again. Uh, make sure you follow us wherever you consume podcasts, and we will catch you next time. <laughs>